Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Loose Ends, the Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 23, The Tuesday Lie. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. I do accept ownership of all thoughts and opinions in this podcast. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thanks, Graham. We're back again. Yes, we are, and we have some interesting um, material to talk about. Before we get into that, I have some feedback for you you may be interested in. Yes. A listener wrote in commenting about legal fees, you being pro bono, of course. They're probably a solicitor or accountant, I suspect. They suggested that the legal billings would probably be well in excess of a million dollars, a significant amount. I didn't spend nearly as many hours as you, and I haven't really kept a record, but I doubt there'd be any change from 100000 for my time. And I guess there's a moral there, Jeff. If you want to be an investigator or a lawyer, follow the law. I'm not sure how to comment to that, Graham. Uh, I must say, I've never had a legal bill go out for over a million dollars. Uh, you know, I know I've spent a lot of time on this. I, I just don't acquaint it in dollar terms. started work on this seeker thing back in January of 2018. I can't believe so much time has passed. Uh, did I keep a record of the hours? No, but does it run into thousands of hours? Yes. It does raise a question. How do people like Max Seeker or Graham Stafford or anyone else for that matter get the kind of legal representation that might keep them out of jail when it's so expensive? Uh, yeah, I suppose that's that could be a fair comment. I've always been a believer that if you have money to throw at your defence, you'll do a lot better than if you're relying on legal aid. But anyway... The top QCs these days can demand, you know, in excess of $10,000 a day for their time. I'm not sure how somebody who's faced with trials like Graham Stafford and Max Seeker could ever handle that. I received this interesting email, and it's very powerful. I've just finished listening to your podcast. I am in shock. I would have put my children's lives on the fact that Max was guilty. Now I believe he is truly innocent. I, however, have no trust in the Queensland Police to help in any way in rectifying this awful wrong. Anyway, just wanted to say, well done and congratulations on your great work. Jeff, that comment is just incredible. So today we're dealing with a second lie, right? Well, the principal thing that intrigued me right 
from the outset when I started to look at this. Of course, I went to the judges summing up. It was lengthy. Uh, I had no real criticism of the judges summing up, and nor should I. Uh, what I did gain from that is the emphasis that was placed by the prosecutor on these two deliberate lies evidencing guilt. It occupied some 12 pages from memory of the judges summing up. It was something that, you know, had significant focus for the prosecution. The crux, I suppose, Graham, is this, that if you simplify down the seeker case, put aside all of the peripheral circumstantial matters, it was absolutely essential that the Crown was able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker went to the Singh House on the Sunday night, early Monday morning, as alleged by the Crown, and committed those murders. If they couldn't do that, then the jury should have found Max Seeker not guilty of those murders. That was the obligation of the Crown. And so in this podcast and the subsequent podcast, I deal with those two deliberate lies and my assessment of them, and particularly from the point of view of what evidence was called and what evidence wasn't called. I can't agree more. Those two lies, if he didn't commit those murders on Sunday night, that was the only window of opportunity for him. After that, he just didn't have time. He was alibied. Reminds me, another listener said they thought this police investigation was a classic case of detective myopia. I couldn't agree more. I believe the case could be used as a case study, actually. Anyway. Well, you know, just let me briefly comment on that because, you know, at trial there was cross-examination where uh, investigating officers were saying, oh, no, Max wasn't a, you know, he was a person of interest, not a suspect at the initial stages. That's debunked by two things. Uh, I subsequently found a speech given by a detective to an organisation on the Gold Coast sometime after the trial where he blandly stated that Max Seeker was the only suspect right from the outset. And to back that up, there's that job log we found, of course, my friend that said on the 25th of April from memory, so within three days, that Max Seeker was the only suspect. Did they have tunnel vision? Maybe. I certainly don't think they seriously investigated the other possibilities of who might have committed those murders. I know the prosecutor certainly uh, submitted to the jury that it was a complete and thorough investigation, and in fact, he specifically refers to the 1,522 job logs as evidence of the depth of the investigation. It's a shame in referring to that that the prosecutor didn't refer to job log 741 relating to the CCTV footage at Stafford a Shopping Centre that I'll get to, nor the job log that says that they don't intend to speak to Lisa L and take a statement from her when she swears they door-knocked on her door and she told them that she'd seen Max Seeker's car parked outside her house all weekend and more particularly at 1am on the Monday morning. I'll deal with the Tuesday lie first, the second lie, because 
what I see is that the prosecutor relied heavily on what he said was Max's lie on the Tuesday about his time of arrival to bolster weak evidence with respect to Matt's being at the house on Sunday night and committing those murders. Jeff, there are some guidelines, aren't there, that the prosecutor must adhere to at trial? Okay, so let's go back now and I'll deal with those director's guidelines as a starting point. Graham, it might assist your listeners if I just give them a brief overview of a publication by the Queensland Government through the Department of Justice and Attorney General and the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. It's available on the internet and it's entitled Director's Guidelines. What it is is a guideline for prosecutors in the conduct of criminal cases. This is right at the outset and I quote, The community's interest is that the guilty be brought to justice and that the innocent not be wrongly convicted. I raise the question as to how the Attorney General, the Premier and her government explain the dismissal of the substantial grounds for referral to the Court of Appeal in the Seeker case without giving reasons and without the decision being amenable to judicial review satisfies the community's interest in avoiding wrongful convictions. They can't. Oh, sorry? Yes, they can. They just tell the community that the law says we can refuse to refer a matter to the Court of Appeal for any reason. It doesn't matter if police and others have manufactured evidence or misled the court. We don't have to tell the community why we refuse to refer any matter to the Court of Appeal. And by the way, you can't ask the court to judicially review our decision. That doesn't sound fair to anyone. No, it doesn't. And then, (laughs) speaking of fair, guideline one says, quote, the duty of a prosecutor is to act fairly and impartially to assist the court to arrive at the truth. Well, your listeners can decide for themselves after I outline the grounds upon which the petition and request for referral were based as to whether they believe the prosecutors in the Seekerton case complied with that guideline. Let me then go to guideline 29, three in brackets, and it's headed exculpatory information. By way of explanation, exculpatory just means evidence that supports the accused and might tend to prove that the accused didn't commit the crime. Guideline 29 says if a prosecutor knows of a person who can give evidence that may be exculpatory but forms the view on reasonable grounds that the person is not credible, the prosecutor is not obliged to call that witness. There's some provisos to that guideline, but I won't confuse or bore the listeners with that at this stage. What I can say is this guideline becomes relevant as I deal with witnesses that were not called at trial when, in my opinion, any fair-minded prosecutor 
should not have determined that they lacked credibility. And also in dealing with job logs that really were hidden like needles in haystacks to avoid exculpatory evidence being produced at trial. I think there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't care whether Max Seeker received a fair trial or not. But I bet if they were in the same situation where they were claiming to be innocent, they would be unhappy if there was all this exculpatory evidence that wasn't called a trial. They would be calling out for a fair trial. Yes, as you're well aware, I'm convinced that there was substantial evidence that the jury didn't hear, and as a result of that, Max Seeker, in my opinion, didn't get a fair trial. Let me say, the very foundation of our criminal justice system is the right of any person to a fair trial. Without that, the system falls apart. Let me go on to Guideline 39, which is really a follow-up to Guideline 29, and it's headed Witnesses. In deciding whether or not to call a particular witness, the prosecutor must be fair to the accused. There's that word fair again. The general principle is that the Crown should call all witnesses capable of giving evidence relevant to the guilt or innocence of the accused. Now, again, that has provisos, but the wording's quite clear. So that as we go on and discuss Tuesday's lie and Sunday's lie, the listeners will become acquainted with witnesses that were capable of giving evidence relevant to the innocence of Max Seeker, but they weren't called. It doesn't sound particularly fair to me. I certainly think it is. It sort of offends my sense of justice in that I find it difficult to believe that in this day and age, There are situations where people don't get fair trials and probably your Graham Stafford matter might fall into the same category. I can guarantee that the word fair was never even contemplated in the Graham Stafford case. Being across both briefs of evidence, I am firmly of the belief police had more evidence against Graham Stafford than they ever had against Max Seeker. Graham Stafford ultimately had his conviction quashed, so who knows where this is going. You've done a great job in taking up the cudgel and assessing some of that, so we'll get to that a little later as well. Anyway, Graham, I did say I wouldn't legalise too much for your listeners. I've really only done so in a situation where hopefully it aids the listeners in understanding my concerns that a substantial miscarriage of justice occurred in the Seeker trial. Yes, Jeff, good effort. Very much plain speak. Good. (laughs) I try to be. With that in mind, let me explain it in this way. And at the risk of repeating myself, uh, let me again point out that the prosecutor relied heavily at the trial on what he claimed were two deliberate lies told by Max Seeker that were evidence of his guilt. Now, the trial judge described those alleged lies at paragraph 1,234 of his summing up to the jury, and it's best left to the judge, in his words, to 
outline those lies. The prosecution, however, does rely on what are said to be two of his lies to show that the accused is the killer. These are, in his 22 April 2003 interview, and on the 31st of March, 1st of April, he claimed that he had been at his home all Easter Sunday night, the time when, on the prosecution case, the Singh children were killed. That, on the 22 April, he arrived at the Singh house at about 2.20pm. In my opinion, Graham, the reliance by the prosecution on what they alleged were those two deliberate lies evidenced in guilt was the crux of their case. If you take away, is there other evidence to which they referred? Yes, of course there is. Uh, you've dealt with a lot of that in previous podcasts and I'll deal with it briefly again in further podcasts. Those two lies were, in my opinion, at the very heart of the case for the Crown in saying Max Seaton committed these murders. As I have said, unless the Crown could prove beyond reasonable doubt Max Seeker deliberately lied about being home all Easter Sunday night, their case had to fail. And the judge made that clear. That was when the alleged murders occurred. Unless the Crown could satisfy the jury that Max Seeker went to the Singh House on Easter Sunday night, no reasonable jury could be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker committed the murders. By alleging that was a deliberate lie evidencing guilt, the prosecutor, in my opinion, then set a high bar. If anything, it increased his duty and responsibility to call all relevant witnesses with respect to that allegation. He didn't do so. And I'll deal with that in more detail relating to Sunday night in the next episode. Okay. Right. I think it might assist the listeners to understand the significance of what I'm saying if I deal with the alleged second deliberate lie first. And the allegation by the Crown, or the suggestion by the Crown, was he lied about the time that he turned up because he was there at that earlier point in time, perhaps engaging in cleaning up the crime scene. But at least he lied because he couldn't explain having been there at 2 o'clock when he didn't ring triple O until after 2.30, I think it was about 20 to 3, that he had no reason to lie about that if he hadn't committed the murders. The purpose in the Crown alleging this was a deliberate lie evidencing guilt was to provide support for the main allegation that Max Seeker lied about being at home all Sunday night. The allegation that he was there earlier cleaning up supported an assertion that he must have been there on Sunday night and committed the murders. Otherwise, why would he be there cleaning up at an earlier point in time? In my view, they were obliged to call all relevant evidence, including evidence that supported Max Seeker's statements that he arrived at about 2.20pm. And they didn't do so. And now I'll outline the reasons as to why I say that. Okay. Both Max Seeker and his sister Anna McGovern had stated to police at an early point in time that Max had picked up his sister from her home at Inogra 
on the 22nd of April and transported her to Stafford City Shopping Centre where she had a nail appointment. Now, that appointment was for 2.30pm and Anna McGovern's evidence was that Max dropped her off in a loading bay just outside the front entrance to the shopping centre. There was a nail technician with whom she had the appointment that was called to give evidence at trial and that nail technician confirmed that Anna McGovern arrived early for her appointment at about 2.10 to 2.15 that day. Now, that technician also confirmed that there were CCTV cameras existing at the shopping centre on the 22nd of April. Also, during my investigations, I visited the shopping centre. I observed a number of CCTV cameras in the area where Anna McGovern claimed she was dropped off. And I also confirmed with management that CCTV cameras existed at the 22nd of April 2003. Now, I was also told by the person to whom I spoke that if the police had inquired about footage from that day, that footage would have been retained. So I suppose you're thinking, well, why wasn't there any CCTV footage produced at trial, Graham? I know exactly why the CCTV evidence was not presented at trial, Jeff. Queensland Police wouldn't agree with me. I say it simply did not suit their case. <laughs> well, if the listener is, a, you know, it's a very good question. It was also my concern from the outset. Because, you see, in addition to the prosecutor alleging that Maxika deliberately lied, he also told the jury that they would doubt that Anna McGovern was ever in the car that day. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. What he was telling the jury is that she was deliberately lying also to cover for her brother. Now, if there was CCTV footage recovered showing Max Seeker dropping off his sister at around 2.10pm, that would have blown the Crown's allegation that Max Seeker and his sister deliberately lied out of the water. He could never have been at the Singh House at 2 o'clock if he was dropping his sister off at 2.10 at the shopping centre. An intriguing and plausible suggestion, Jeff. Well, I was intrigued and so it required further investigation. Early in the piece, I met with the solicitor who acted for Max Seeker at trial. One of the first things I asked him was if he'd ever made inquiries for CCTV footage from Stafford City. He told me he'd not made any inquiries because he believed no footage existed and he could give me no further information on the matter at all. Anyway, in perusing the transcript of the committal proceedings, I did find that Sam DiCarlo, had cross-examined Detective Zitney about efforts to obtain CCTV footage. It's best if we refer to the actual exchange extracted from the transcript at page 20-69 of the transcript at the committal of the hearing. There is this exchange. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. These are the words of DiCarlo and Zitney, but not their voices. I am reading for Sam DiCarlo, and I have a voice actor replying for Zitney. Did you make inquiries? We did make inquiries. I can say we made inquiries at the Stafford City Shopping Centre. All right. For any opportunities of video footage, and they didn't have a system there. Didn't have a system at all? No, no. There was no video footage available. In 2003? That's right. You know, as you've heard from that exchange, Detective Zitney said there was no CCTV system and then there's no footage. And in court, he undertakes to get the information detailing who made the request and when it was made. He returned to court at some later stage, but not with the information related to Stafford City. In my opinion, the evidence he gave was at best misleading. He referred to job logs from the 1,522 job logs that existed, but he failed to refer to job log 741. I found job log 741 when I was perusing all of those job logs, and that was the relevant log relating to the direction to obtain security footage from Stafford City Shopping Centre. That log was never brought to the attention of the court or the defence by Detective Zitney or the prosecutor at the committal or at trial. It was issued 20 days after the murders were committed and for some reason required footage from only 2.15pm onwards, despite both Max Seeker and his sister telling police that the sister had been dropped off at 2.10pm. Why would that be? I believe I know why that would be, Jeff, but where does it lead us or where does it take us? Let me explain the legal ramifications of what I've outlined. To have a court of appeal deal on appeal or review on a factual basis, the new facts have to be essentially what's called fresh evidence. Fresh evidence is evidence that was not available at the time of trial or obtainable by the defendant with the exercise of reasonable diligence. Job log 1741 was available at the time of trial, but then I found it because I religiously searched through every one of those 1,522 job logs. The important factor in this is that in a trial like this, what you'd normally expect to find is a reference in the officer's statement to his being instructed to obtain that security footage, going to the shopping centre, outlining who he spoke to and recording on the job log and in the running sheet the result of those inquiries. None of that existed. And despite the cross-examination at committal, no information was forthcoming from the Crown or Detective Zitney, identifying job log 741 or the officer directed to make the inquiry. Now, if the prosecutor 
knew of Job Log 741, surely he would have brought it to Sam DiCarlo's attention. He obviously didn't know about it because it certainly wasn't brought to Mr DiCarlo's attention. Obviously, Detective Zitney knew something about the security footage from Stafford City Plaza because in that previous exchange with Sam DiCarlo, what he said was, and I quote, there was no system and no footage available. He obviously had that information. Somebody must have given him that information or alternatively was able to get that information from the job lot. And yet he fails to, as he undertook, advise the court and Sam DiCarlo of the existence of Job Log 741. He was the lead detective on the case. One might be excused for thinking that one of the first things Detective Zitney would want to check was whether or not Max Seeker was telling the truth about taking his sister to Stafford City and arriving at the Singh House at 2.20pm. A detective of his experience would immediately require CCTV footage from the shopping centre, surely. Was he concerned that if the defence gained access to Job Log 741, they would then become aware of the following? One, footage was only required from 2.15pm, not 2.10pm. 20 days had elapsed before the Job Log 741 was issued. The officer who was directed to make the inquiry made no entry in the running sheets, his notebook or in his statement concerning Job Log 741 or of the inquiries he was directed to make and the result of those inquiries. Now, if he'd identified Job Log 741, it would have been incumbent upon the Crown to call the officer who issued that job log and the officer who was directed to obtain the footage, and they would have been subject to vigorous cross-examination, as would Detective Zitney had been, had job log 741 been disclosed. Well, it sounds like job log 741 was inconvenient to the Crown case. Well, that might be the understatement of the day. <laughs> I mean, it certainly wouldn't have helped their cause, would it? The other thing, there were 16 job logs issued between the Tuesday, the 23rd of April, and the 12th of May when job log 741 was issued. I mean, there were directions to people to go to IGA and obtain footage of Max Seeker buying Easter eggs on Saturday, the 19th of April. And that apparently was more important than obtaining security footage from Stafford City Plaza. I think you just have to look at the mindset and the phrase the listener commented on, detective myopia. You raised it, far be it for me to disagree. I'd ask your listeners to then consider what impact it would have had on the jury if they'd known that despite undertakings made to the court to provide details, Detective Zitney failed to do that. He made no reference to Job Log 71. He provided information in relation to other job logs that have nothing to do with Stafford City. One could postulate that that was misleading. And this was the so-called deliberate lie that the Crown placed so much store on 
at the trial. It was used by the Crown to bolster their weak evidence about Max Seeker lying about being home all Sunday night. And yet the very CCTV footage that could have discounted that lie entirely was never recovered. And it was never recovered for the reasons that I've just outlined. It's my understanding most places with CCTV only keep it for a limited time, possibly up to one month before recycling the tapes. This is what happens. I mean, everybody knows, and the police certainly better than anybody else would know, that most places keep that CCTV footage for a limited time and that they, you know, reuse the tapes or whatever it is that they use to make the record so that unless there's a prompt request for CCTV footage, you know, that it disappears. Waiting 20 days for that CCTV footage before you make any request, if indeed you did make a request, is inexplicable in the circumstances. The information I was given by management was that if the police had made the request, the footage would be retained They'd make a note of the request so that they'd have a record of it. And in general terms, they retained footage where no request had been made for about a month. Make up your own mind about that. Bottom line, it wasn't obtained. And yet, despite that, and despite the circumstances I outlined, the prosecutor then alleges to the jury that Max and his sister deliberately lied about her being dropped off at Stafford City and Max lied about the time that he turned up at the Singh household. Doesn't seem fair to me. Anyway, in my opinion, that's a very serious matter. There should be an independent inquiry into the police and prosecutorial conduct into this alone. But more importantly, that really demands any fair-minded Attorney-General faced with those circumstances would refer that to the Court of Appeal for a review of the case. Right. One might think that's all there was for deliberate lie number two. Sorry, not quite. And you've dealt with at least one of these subjects, I know. I'll mention it briefly. Listeners will have heard of the statement of Malena P that you referred to in your earlier podcast. Yes, the young 10-year-old girl who said she was in the car with Max and Anna. Yep, Melena P was related to Max Seeker. At the time, she was 10 years old. She had a hearing difficulty, she spoke Italian better than English, and she was interviewed by police the day after, on the 23rd of April. The thing that also attracted my attention was that police denied her the presence of an adult during that interview. Yes, hard to fathom. I can't get my mind around it. And particularly when I compare it to the interview uh, interviews conducted with Daniel Seeker. Uh, Daniel was 11 years old. He was Max's son. He gave, in my view, confusing evidence, but his statement was produced by police in evidence for one reason that he asserted that they went straight to the Singh house. But the Crown does not produce the statement made by Melina P to police when she was interviewed. When I was searching through the job logs, 
I found the job log relating to the interview by the two police officers with Elena P. That was job log number 92 for reference. And it's also referred to in item 87 of the running sheet record. What those entries recorded was that Malena told police early in the piece the following. During Tuesday, they all went to put the videos back, went to get an auntie and bring her to Stafford Road. It was Auntie Anna. Jeff, it's my recollection Daniel gave three statements to the effect, one, they went to Stafford City with Anna. Two, they dropped Anna at a shopping centre which may have been Chermside. And three, that they went straight to the Singh house. That pretty much reflects my understanding of it. That was why I simply said that my recollection was that his statements were confusing. Perhaps I've understated it. Because for me, the importance was a prosecutor shouldn't be entitled just to produce statements by Daniel Seeker that support the police and prosecution narrative. He was obliged to also produce the evidence from Melena P that says they went and picked up an auntie, took her to Stafford Road, and it was Auntie Anna. I mean, talk about out of the mouths of babes. Here's a 10-year-old girl, unassisted by any adult, who, when questioned by police, tells them that. I mean, how could you doubt her credibility? The listeners, I'm sure, will take that on board. Not calling Malena was really cherry-picking the witnesses, I believe. Well, (laughs) you may say that. Far be it for me to disagree. Now, in summary, the jury might well have believed that Malena was truthful in what she told the police. And if that evidence had been produced, it's highly unlikely, in my view, that the prosecutor would have been so bold as to tell the jury, and I quote, you would have doubts that Anna McGovern was in the car with the accused as she testified. I'm staggered in recalling it again because it just seems so blatantly unfair to make those sorts of assertions and fail to call this sort of evidence. It casts doubt on the supposed lie, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, well, join that with the obvious efforts not to get CCTV footage and the next evidence that I'm going to outline, and it does. Again, I think that's a very serious matter and it required referral to the Court of Appeal so that the Court of Appeal might be given the opportunity to hear from Malena P. Is that the evidence today, Jeff? I'm not quite finished, Graham. Close, but not quite. You will recall that evidence was given by a scenes of crime officer, and using your term, I'll soco from here on, and also a workman that was working on a property near the Singh household about a photo of a phone being taken and the display on the phone showing the phone was some six minutes slow, in essence. When I looked at that photograph, and I had it blown up, the date on the photograph was blurred. The evidence that 
both of those witnesses gave was that that phone was photographed when the Socko left the crime scene, went next door, spoke to the workman, put his phone on the ground and took a photograph of it. Right. And at the same time, using his own phone, the Socko rang Telstra Time. The recorded message is said to have said that the time was 2.19pm, okay? So they said that happened on the 29th. I had doubts because when I looked at the blurred date, I wasn't sure that it said the 29th. I saw a person in Lismore that had done work for police in Sydney with respect to the enhancing of photos, and I had that photo enhanced. Lo and behold, the enhanced photo showed the date on the photo to be the 28th of April, not the 29th. So I then went to the crime scene log. Now, the crime scene log is a log that's kept at the crime scene. It's run by the Soco security officers guarding the crime scene. They are required to record every time a person enters or leaves the crime scene. Now, the Soco who gave evidence about taking the photo of the phone, I understood to be the actual crime scene officer in charge of the entire crime scene. So I look at entries for the 29th of April. In the crime scene log that I have, there is no entry of the Socco leaving the crime scene or returning to the crime scene at any time close to the time he alleged he took the photo. I then went to the crime log for the 28th of April and it records the Socco leaving the crime scene at 12.01pm and returning to the crime scene at 12.05pm and there's no other entry anywhere near the time he alleged he took the photo. May I just ask there... This does not go to proving what time Maxika got to that crime scene, does it? It just goes to the credibility of the Socko. Well, no. The other thing is I can find nowhere where the photograph of that phone was tendered in evidence. Now, it may have been and maybe I've just, I just can't find it, but I can't find any exhibit which seems to refer to that actual photograph. But I have the photograph, and the photograph is relied on by the prosecutor and certainly referred to by the trial judge in his summing up, as you would expect, because it's based upon that evidence. The prosecutor says Max Seeker turned up at an earlier point in time. There was evidence taken from a number of workmen, and I might say that evidence varied considerably. There were some even that said they observed Max Seeker arriving after 230 I recall witnesses had him arriving there any time between 1.30pm and 3.15pm. There you go. I mean, the reliability. The photo of the phone was relied on to support this assertion that he deliberately lied about turning up. And yet the evidence given by both these witnesses is clearly deficient. They say this happened on the 29th. There's no record of it happening on the 29th according to the crime scene log. And the photo of the phone says the date on the phone was the 28th. Well, you know, if the phone was slow, it sure was slow. 
more than 24 hours slow. I mean, it would have discredited that evidence at the very least. And taken with the evidence from Melena P and the evidence of the avoidance of recovery of CCTV footage, how could any reasonable jury not have a reasonable doubt that Max and his sister were deliberately lying? Anyway, the Attorney General, in her wisdom, says no grounds for referral without giving reasons, without Max Seeker being able to seek judicial review with respect to that decision. Seems to me that that evidence certainly requires review by the Court of Appeal. So in summary, Jeff, you're saying that there are significant grounds already for referral to the Court of Appeal and you have only just started. There you go. You're very astute, my friend. And despite these significant grounds, the Attorney-General refuses to refer it to the Court of Appeal and refuses to tell you why she refuses, if that makes sense. That's it. I think that's sufficient for this episode. It'll give your listeners time to digest what I've said about all of that. And again, you know, if the Attorney-General wants to dispute anything I've said, she can always come on your podcast or give reasons as to why she rejected what on the face of it, is serious and compelling deficiencies in the way in which the prosecution presented their case. I can't see the AG doing that, Jeff, but I may ask her again if she'd care to come on and have a discussion. I'll leave that to you. Yeah, okay, thanks again, Graham. Good to catch up. That's it for episode 23. Join us again. Jeff will be discussing lie number one. Is that correct, Jeff? Yeah, he will. The next podcast will deal with the alleged deliberate lie that Max was lying when he said that he was home all Sunday night. Thanks, Graham. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast for me. It does help spread the story. If you like the podcast, please tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me at the Facebook page, Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thank you again for listening.